Welcome to Collector's Corner, the premier digital art platform. We help collectors gain and maintain their edge, all while appreciating beautiful art. Let's jump in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Collector's Corner. My name is P. You may know me online as at Aston Cloud. I'm joined by my co-host, Jared, who you may know online as at Jared underscore pause. And we have another fantastic guest, our second artist spotlight. And we have Cole Sternberg, who is super interesting in for a lot of reasons, having a traditional art background, having a now a generative art practice. And you you do in traditional art, you've done a, a range of stuff. And so I'm really excited because, and it sounds weird, but we don't get a lot of traditional artists that we get the chance to speak to. And for me personally, Jared, less so, I have less exposure to the traditional art world. So thinking about how these worlds will fuse and hearing about your experiences, that's super exciting. How are you doing today, Cole? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to bridge that gap a little bit with the traditional world excited to talk to you guys about everything I'm working on now. Yeah, you have been. You've been trailblazing. And and Jared, how are you, my friend? Outside of battling uh, a mild migraine, I'm living the dream, man. And uh, I decided to ditch the three-piece suit and go super cash today in light of the migraine. So I was going to say, despite the migraine, you're looking better than me as usual. But I do have, I'll show the folks my, my NFT sweatshirt, limited edition. I'm I'm just kidding. Somebody gave it as a Christmas present. I have no idea where it came from. Probably not limited edition, but awesome. Thanks for both of you making the time. And Cole is actually on vacation. So we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Just a tiny bit of shop. This is a video episode. So please listen or watch on YouTube. But if you can't, we'll have it out on the podcast. You can listen along. We have a DECA gallery that we've made and we will have everything in the show notes. Please like Subscribe if you enjoy it. And we have a newsletter. Go ahead and sign up for a weekly newsletter on Substack. It'll be in the description of the podcast as well. All right. All that out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. Cole, can you tell us about your background, your artistic background? I know you've been a successful traditional artist for a really long time. So we'd just kind of love to hear how that transpired for you and how that world has uh, how it was for you before you came into web3 very well well first of all ignore this background because i'm in a strange conference room of a hotel but geez i've been painting and drawing and kind of accidentally making conceptual art since i was a kid combining writing and collage and paint and everything and i went to undergrad studying business and and liberal arts, some weird joint major. And I went to law school because I I was always making art, but I didn't think anyone would would buy it. And I didn't know how to get food and a roof over my head. So I kind of started a more traditional job path. And then in law school, I had a, my first art exhibition in a bar in Washington, DC, sold two paintings. And that that was kind of exciting. But I, I ended up being a lawyer for a few years. And there was a point, uh, I guess it was 2008 or 2009, that the art had gained enough traction where I could commit all of my time to that. And since then, it's just been you know a whirlwind of exhibitions and publications, film and all different mediums. 
um, all sort of centered around a visual dialogue and a conceptual dialogue that I think if you looked at the overall practice from that first bar show to the most recent art blocks drop, you would actually see it a rational trajectory. So I've just been going with it for a long time. It's pretty amazing. You don't realize it in the, in the moment, but if 20 year old me knew that for the last however many years that is now 14 years, I could do this full time. I think he would be pretty psyched about it. You know, it's funny. I feel the same way about doing this podcast and I know that might sound cheesy, but it's like amazing to get to be able to talk to talented folks like you and, and see this world unfold. And uh, sorry, Jared, I think you had a question. So I just wanted to say that. No, it, I, I really wanted to ask Cole. It sounds like a little bit of happenstance of passion mixed with like time and, and exposure. But, you know, for, for Cole and one of our, our good Grailer friends is Zero X Techno, who just had a, an awesome release of toys. A lot of artists, I feel, struggle to to get that exposure and that chance to kind of have their breakout moment for you, if you don't mind shedding a little bit of color into, into your journey and maybe a couple tips along the way for maybe some artists looking to break through it. Because I know getting into galleries is a struggle, like getting exposure is sometimes the hardest thing. So do you, do you have any recommendations? Well, it's, oh, it's so tricky. And of course, there are millions of artists. Not all the work is great, but there's a lot of great work out there that never never gets the exposure needed for the person to really commit all their time to it. But, and for me, it was sort of a mystery too. The web three version is a little less mystery. I think there's, I mean, you can blindly email a web three company or distributor or gallerist or whatever you want to call them. And they might actually respond. But when I was starting out thinking, oh, I want to have a show at a traditional gallery, the like worst thing you could do was email them and show them your work. It felt like they, they always perceived that as sort of strange or desperate or something. So it took me a, I mean, the, the easiest way to get in the traditional art world is to go get your master's at Yale or Dusseldorf Academy or one of the few like mega art schools. Cause there's, there's a history there. There are artists that are teachers that really like go out of their way to help the students get into galleries. I mean, remarkably, are remarkable at helping their students. So if you could get an MFA at one of those mega branded schools, I guess that would be the most effective way. For me, it was just kind of an unusual process. I mean, I'm a little bit different. I think I can sell my own work a little more effectively than some other people. So that helped at the beginning when no one else would do it. And then those people have started, the collectors started helping me a lot. And then... In 2008, the show I had was at a pop-up space. It wasn't a, a traditional gallery. It was just a space that could hang five years of my paintings pretty much in it. And I helped in that marketing a lot and made sure the photography was good and the website was good and the collectors I knew got the information and the gallery was positioned for, for it to be successful. I call it a gallery, but, and that helped incredibly and sold that show out. It was 50 paintings. And, and then that, you know, that jump started it to a pretty large degree, but then it's just an after, I mean, so if you can kind of get a little bit of forward progression, that's helpful. And then just being committed to the practice, you know, and, and making sure the work is the quality level 
the expression that you want, the visual that you want. And you got to just believe in it and hope that eventually it'll, it'll take off. But then if it doesn't take off, whatever, at least you're still making the work. So the work's hopefully going to survive either way. Historically in the art world, a lot of artists don't see the success, but the work becomes influential and important later on. So you could always look at it that way too. Do you feel like your life experience and, and previous career choices to get into to be a lawyer and, and other paths contributed to that success in any way? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I just had a show that closed the other day at my undergrad institution, Villanova, at their museum and publicly in these big murals throughout the school. And that was probably the most popular question. And I think undergrad, I don't know. I, I really told them I have no idea. I was just painting in my room. Law school gave me this work ethic that was just an, insane. I mean, I, I had my classes. I had a job. I was editor of Law Review. I won moot court. Like all of these things that you try to do in law school, I worked from 8 a.m. to midnight pretty much every day and didn't care. Just that was just what everyone I knew was doing. So now I just have that in me. So even like working a nine to five kind of schedule is super easy. And also just not slacking off. Like I could have a, a big exhibition and then chill for a long time, but I don't do that. And I think that's largely because of, because of the schooling. And then conceptually, I mean, a lot of the stuff I learned in undergrad and law school is in the work. Um, I use that legal knowledge. I mean, one of the pieces I made a couple of years ago is I wrote an entire new functional constitution. Because um, in America, there's this love for the constitution, but it hasn't been effectively. I mean, there are amendments, obviously, but not in a long time. And they're not fluid or effective, especially in this technological age and this fast moving age. So that law school training allowed me to do that in a way where I could confidently say it, you know, it looks like actual law. So, so all of it's good. I mean, it, it means my career started a little bit later, I guess, than other people. Because if you got your MFA at 24 and started showing, that's one thing. But if you're toiling away as a lawyer for a few years, then it's more like 30. But, but that's all good. Yeah, no, when you mentioned attention to detail and, you know, your ability to talk your way into a gallery and manage that process, it, it definitely, to me, was representative of a, a potential call it, advantage to to being a lawyer. I mean, that, that level of, I mean, just negotiation and contracts and detail-oriented nature, that's interesting. And I, I think the other thing that you mentioned is like, yeah, you didn't come out of MFA, but I think it's also a unique life journey that got you to where you are and and it's really cool that that's evidenced in your work and it starts to influence you even call x amount of years later you know that that's pretty pretty admirable that like that's still showing up today oh thanks yeah it's one of my pet peeves i mean i've spoke to a bunch of presidents vice presidents professors of art schools and in general i don't know that they give a great advice about how to manage your life and business part which I, and they don't think they're supposed to, I guess, but it would be, it would be helpful for, for the art practice students to have a little bit broader perspective of what's happening around them, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I, I you know, you mentioned you had a business, maybe that was your undergrad degree in business, but I think everything that you talked about, you were doing with the marketing and sort of being strategic, especially in your first show with getting collectors. And I'm sure your goal was to sell it out and you accomplished that. That is a lot of business 
stuff. And it, I can't remember if we talked about this when we first chatted. And we'll, we'll say that this longer part of the conversation about what could Web3 artists pull from the trad art world and vice versa. But it, it strikes me that in Web3, you kind of have to do a little more of that, at least right now, where you don't have the same infrastructure and companies helping you navigate the space and all sorts of decisions like relating to collectors, to pricing. So many things are different that I'm sure somebody who's a, a self-starter could do quite well in, in this new space. Yeah, it brought me back to that time because I've been a little bit spoiled recently in that respect. So, I mean, for instance, with the first the spring begins with our blocks you know they said oh get on discord and talk to the collectors and stuff and i just thought wait what i like i haven't really had that kind of a direct contact in a while and direct analysis of the work and the exposure to the pricing i mean any day of the week i can look on there and see what's selling or what people you know what people are proposing to sell and my physical work is i'm very careful with it's it's not supposed to be sold all the time. It's supposed to eventually go to institutions pretty much. So yeah, business, I think the business savvy thing in Web3 is, I mean, it will help an artist, but it, it can also, I feel like hurt some very great artists because it's stressful. You know, it's a stressful obligation for some people. That's fine for me. I like it. I'm, I've made a lot of friends through it, but yeah, that's a that's one of the sort of, tricky parts about it there's a nice thing if you don't want to if you want to wall up as a traditional artist a gallery can provide that and at some galleries i think prefer that maybe if you're coming in and you know bothering everyone all the time no for sure and i i think because we're so early in the web 3 art world let's call it you, you kind of artists kind of have to do some of those things i imagine in the coming years there will be companies and services etc that make it so you don't have to but what i think is the case and, and i don't know is but it seems like you will have you have more freedom in web3 maybe you could go direct if you wanted to whereas perhaps that was harder in the traditional side but holding that for for later because i i am really curious to hear your thoughts on that i wanted to ask just one more question for some of our listeners who as jared mentioned might be thinking about taking the plunge what was that like when you decided to transition and no longer work in your legal job and shift over to being a full-time artist? Like, was it stressful or do you have any advice for folks who might be thinking about making that transition? I mean, it wasn't stressful for me because that show was so lucrative that I had, a, I had in my mind, I thought I can live for about a year with what has happened. So let me try it. And that was amazing. Like that was what I had to do. The work got better and bigger and more focused and, and it just, you know, took off from there. I think if you're in a financial position where you can buy yourself a little bit of time when you leave, that'll help decrease the stress. But then, you know, at the end of the day, like just, I think everyone needs to figure out a way somehow to just go for it. We only have so many years on the planet. My lawyer job was a nice job, but do I want did I want to go my whole life with that as the like symbol of me? Not really. So if you feel that way as well, you got to just do it. And if the work's good, you should be able to navigate it somehow. And there's always ways to pick up some gigs. If you need some money, you can always, you know, graphic design or 
consult with someone. And you, if you're aggressive enough and smart enough, I think you'll be okay. Yeah, and I, sorry, Jared, just one second. I I totally get that. I was on the path to being a doctor, as I've said a few times on this podcast. And I don't know, this Gen Art Web three opportunity came up, and I was like, you know what, gotta try it, and then and then we'll see. So I totally resonate with that. So okay, speaking of Web three, you were you have this amazing career as an artist in the traditional world. What when did you first hear about what was happening in Web three? And what made you decide to make that transition? Well, well, okay. There's two parts in my head about this because I don't really feel like it's a transition. It's just another, I work in a lot of mediums and it's just another medium and I was making digital things, but they weren't distributed in this way, I guess. So that's just like a side, a side note. Oh my God. I can't remember when I heard about this world. I remember the first annoying thing, which wasn't when I first heard about it, which is I started to get friends texting me like, hey, my cousin's best friend sold an NFT for $8 million. You should do that. You know, just like, like these silly things. And then I would look, I mean, I don't know if they were true. Maybe they were true. Maybe they weren't. But the people didn't have a real art background or I couldn't find visuals of them and stuff. So I'd, I would just ignore them or laugh and move on. But one, one text I got from a friend was just, uh, about our mutual friend, Rob Dixon, who goes by Radix and, you know, he's a generative artist and that triggered, like I knew about generative art, but I thought, oh, I'd like to talk to him about it and see, you know, about Saul Wit and sort of the history, but I want to see, see what, what he's working on. And then we talked for a couple of months about the art blocks kind of on chain version. And that was intriguing. And a lot of my projects, if you, you can scroll on the front page of my website, are like kind of mindfuck projects, like writing a new constitution, writing a budget, memorizing a TED talk for that subject. Like I'll, I like continuing to push my mind as far as it can go. So I thought, oh, this is another way I can do that. And this is for sure, it's a big part of the future of our visual world. So, so that's kind of what started me on it. And then I, Took me about nine months to build out the first project with i mean i'm not from a coding background i guess that's obvious now in this podcast but at this point i'm a little bit better at coding but i needed a lot of help and developers explaining it and how things worked and i just kind of dug in you know and kept going at it and now i'm like obsessed with it because there's so many possibilities you can change a painting's background to a whole nother color set I can't do that on a physical painting. There's a lot of playground in the Web3 world that doesn't exist in, in like a physical space. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you see Web3 as, or let's call it generative art, as, as another medium amongst the many that you play in and, and kind of create with. And for folks who don't know, I mean, you, you have really quite a variety of paintings, installations, videos, writing. Are you more or less intrigued by generative and Web3 now having dipped your toe in? That's probably a better way to put it. <laughs> oh, I mean, certainly more intrigued. I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with the wide variety of possibilities creatively and whether it's I've been taking a bunch of coding classes, but I've also been like playing with 
layered film digitally and thinking about environments digitally. I haven't really created anything yet, like metaverse wise kind of, but there's just so many things in there that fascinate me. So it's just been growing. I mean, from, from the development of that, of the spring, I mean, through that whole period, really, I was, excuse me, making new things. And, and now I'm making digital things all the time like on my computer. I don't think, I mean, 95% of them will never see the light of day, but I mean, gosh, it's at least half of my practice, I would say now, uh, mentally, like the, fo- the focus and the time of it. What made you want to get into coding versus, you know, maybe just allowing, like collaborating in it? And, and I say that as a compliment because I look at somebody like, even Snowfro for art blocks, he decided that he wanted to understand the practice behind it. And he kind of dug into the code rather than um, in the platform to create it. So I guess my question ultimately is like, what inspired you to dig in uh, a little bit deeper and, and code yourself? Well, annoyance. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's a sil- it's almost a silly thing. Like I'm never going to have the, the coding knowledge of Rob, for instance. He's been coding since he's he was 12 years old, decades of coding expertise. And there's certain things that I'll probably never get to. But I also don't want to not have the paintbrush in my hand. So I want to be able, in the very least, to, to like think, to be able to think through all the possibilities. And I think you need to know some degree of coding to do that or have a, a great collaborator, I guess. But, you know, when you're just sitting at home alone, Thinking about things, I don't, I don't know that the collaborator is going to be there in every moment. And then I started just going on the coding train, you know, like doing those, those exercises in it. And they were super enjoyable. I mean, if you've never looked at code and then you look at it, it's very scary. <laughs> what are you looking at? But then once you can, you know, once you understand the prompts and everything, it's a, it's such a nicer world. Uh, so I, I just enjoy that. I think it's just another learning thing, like reading a book or going to a lecture in a way. No, I, I respect this. And not to say one path is is better than the other, but I feel I want to learn to code. In full disclosure, I don't know anything about coding, but to me, it's a it's the equivalent of, you know, stretching your own canvas or, you know, finding your own paintbrushes, messing around with it to understand like how how to tweak and and inherently not just relying on the output of others, but you know, trying to influence it on your own. And and what I heard from you is you're also getting input from others who maybe have, have done this and, and that lessons are, are being able to help accelerate your learning and then also take your artistic nature and, and that you inherently have from a decade or two of, of doing this outside of Web3 and put your own touch on it. So it's really, I'm fascinated with this, this paradigm where we're, I'll call it, I'm trying to get away from the trad art versus web three art. And, you know, everybody's like, it's just art, but you know, while we're siloed in this nature, you know, individuals such as yourself who are able to to have that overlap and and create a paradigm where, where it exists. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. And I applaud you for taking the time to, to learn to code and really create something that's your own. I think it's very admirable and it's a, I'm not saying it's the more difficult route or there's an easier route, but I'm just saying that there's, there's something inherently admirable about wanting to learn the craft. It's evidenced for those who do want to do a deep dive into your into your history because it's all out there, right? That I feel like this is something that's like viscerally ingrained into who you are and what you want to bring forth as an artist. So 
I commend you for what it's worth and and it shows up in your art. Oh, thanks. And I, I guess I, I stretch my own canvases. I, the spring begins, there's a box set. I build the crates, you know, I screen print the crates for the free Republic project. I may hand make all the, I screen print all the clothes myself. So I try to do it because I just like all these processes. So I try to, I try to do everything myself. I mean, granted, at some point, maybe I won't be able to screen print all the clothes, but I think, you know, I really appreciate the sentiment. I'm glad it, it shows up because it's a, it's a lot of work for me. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a difficult path, which is admirable. And, and I guess while we're here, you know, since you do have a foot in, in these two different silos of traditional art and Web3, do you, do you see any particular perceptions or maybe misperceptions from one versus the other that you want to speak to if you feel comfortable? Yeah, I don't I don't care. I'm happy to speak to it. Well, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, talked about this a little bit before. There's good things and bad things in every community and every industry. And in general, I think a love for both. And I see them as, as one thing. But in the Web3 world, you know, this financial disclosure thing is positive and negative. I mean, it could be hard mentally on an artist, but it's also super nice for collectors to understand, you know, how works sell or don't sell, what's available, which in the traditional art world, you can walk into a beautiful gallery, have plenty of money to buy what's on the walls and no one will tell you the price. So, you know, and they'll be maybe rude about it in certain instances, which I've always hated. I mean, I don't want a price tag on a wall of anything, but the, the barrier to entry is so high in the ser- more serious traditional art world, I think that's a little frustrating. You can buy the highest end Web3 thing if you want it and you have the money and you want to pay for it, but you can't necessarily you know, do that in the regular art world, even though some of these galleries have an inventory, but they're just holding it for certain people. So that's one example of a limitation. I think the knowledge of design in the traditional art world is is really great. I mean, you walk in the serious art galleries and they're beautifully laid out beautifully curated not crowded and at first like the first few shows in the web3 world that i saw were were bad i mean they were just too jam-packed and too many too many like accent walls and just like messy stuff but that changed super quick because that's an easier thing to fix it's not an institutional barrier so if you look at like recent bright moment shows or whatever, they're like beautiful and interesting and, and take advantage of the technology to do things that, you know, painting shows that, for example, couldn't do. So, so that's like, I don't know, something the other way. And then in the end, we're just so early still, I think in five years, all of these things are the same. I think famous Web3 artists want to do physical things. Famous physical artists want to do Web3 things. and. Some people, you know, only want to do one. That's fine too. But I think we're all sort of talking this in the same way. Like you guys know more about what I do than most people that own a physical piece of my work. So, well, I think that's aligned with Web three and just transparency. And, and I mean that as a as a compliment. You know, we we we. I mean, it's our job now as podcasting to dig deeper into it. But I think anytime you're you're talking about spending thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars on a piece like you want to you want to have some sort of emotional connection to it and although it's not in a medium of a a gallery you know you're still able to connect to the piece or have some sort of connection to it and i think that's inherently 
it's aligned with what art is. You got to have some sort of emotional exuberance to to what you're doing. I think that the other thing about the physicals, Snowfro's talked a lot about it. He did it with the the Grails two release where he he gave a piece of pottery. You know, you see it with TLP and screens. You see Dimitri doing a lot of work with his hands, and same with Tyler. So. I think that there's a there's a natural synergy. That, that's why I, I don't like the the perception of of this, these two worlds being siloed because I think that they they inherently feed one another. But to your point, you know, I was on a spaces today with uh with somebody from Pace, and it was is really enlightening to hear kind of like the traditional art, the the gallery perspective in in it, and and I think that the the everything that you just mentioned becomes eradicated to some degree when you're able to have this price discovery when you're able to let the the market speak for not only financial but just even um you know an engagement perspective uh, it's it's a very very intriguing world that i feel like we're transitioning to and and i think that my hypothesis is that individual individuals such as yourself that lean into this and and really create an environment where not only the artist embraces the this progression of art, but also the the community aspect of it can can allow for scaling that maybe artists haven't seen previously. So I'm I'm really intrigued to see how that how that evolves over the coming months and years. Oh, the same for sure. Oh, and I I thought of one other thing that I well, so far in this Web three world, the artists are really connected to each other, at least in my experience, and are are helpful and mainly because of technology, like Discord, it's easy to have a group chat kind of thing. Like there's a lot of that. And I think any gallery I show at, I probably am friends with one other artist, maybe two. And the galleries don't tend to set up the community uh, for us to all hang out. And I think I think that's really nice. I think that would be beneficial. I mean, granted, sometimes it's it's geographic constraints, but like our blocks, for example, whenever they do something, they have an artist hangout thing. And it's just so nice like to see a community being built in that way. And not as competitive. I mean, you know, people are willing to like help you with stuff. Yeah, that's an amazing point. And I think even the fact that we are talking, right, and you are across the world and we're able to engage with you and then anybody across the world who's following us can learn about you and learn about your art and start building a connection there, I think is amazing. And I know you're talking about just the artist, but that technology is being leveraged in, in so many different ways to build more connections that I think is really, really cool. I wanted to ask you one more question on the trad art side, because I, I'm really curious about this. So zero trad art exposure have maybe stepped into like fewer than 15 museums in my life, uh, art museums, science museums I was in all the time. But is there, are there any misconceptions that the Web3 crowd has about the trad art world that, or at least you think that, that the Web3 crowd has that are worth highlighting? They don't have to be the biggest one or anything, but just anything that comes to mind and also vice versa. Like, are there any misconceptions that you think are worth highlighting that the trad art world has about the Web3 side? Good question. Well, the Web3 people, I mean, no one's really expressed me too much frustration or stereotypes or anything about the traditional art world i mean i think i'm just imparting this i don't know i don't i don't know if anyone said it but you know there's a general sort of snobbery going that can permeate 
our world or can be a stereotype with our world, which isn't actually true. I mean, when you know individuals in it, most people are cool, but I can see when you walk into certain spaces getting that vibe. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's something, but it hasn't really been shared with me. On the other side, it's sheer horror at the visuals of some NFTs. Largely because it's not like people go to OpenSea and OpenSea has a lot of categories, you know, and a lot of stuff. But for some traditional art people just go on the front page, you know, and see maybe a couple of nice art things, but a bunch of stuff that's silly, sometimes, you know, discriminatory, especially against women, um, not serious, thoughtful things. And then they think that's everything. So I have to, and then when I take them through generative work and, and art block stuff or whatever, bright moments or verse or whoever, then they get it and they're like, oh, that's, that's great. You know, they're, they're sold, but it's like that instant exposure. And then the media doesn't help at all because the media only, it's, I mean, not you guys, but in general tends to report just money, you know, just like people's bazillion dollar sale or, you know, what, I don't know, whatever the thing of the day is. Um, so that's, that's not really helpful. <laughs> and that's what, that's what they're exposed to. So I think that's, that's the biggest hurdle in the traditional art world. You just got to send them over to collector's corner. We can, we can show them the good stuff, help, help them navigate it. Uh, also, well, let's talk about the spring begins with the first rainstorm. You, you curated this awesome gallery. So we'll put that up on the screen before we show that. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned something earlier when we were talking about how you feel like there's been this common theme and thread throughout your works over the years and that has continued to progress. I'm curious if you could speak to what that is and then how that helped shape or manifested within the spring. Well, in general, it's a commentary on environmental collapse and humankind's irrational behavior. I mean, I often dive into other human rights issues as well, but that's the through line from that first exhibition in that bar to the spring. And, um, you know, we, I mean, everyone knows we just keep consuming and creating garbage and killing animals and trees and just like creating our own ultimate demise, I guess. But then at the same time, we're surrounded by this planet that's so stunning and lucky and beautiful. And I mean, you look at Mars, I mean, it's like not really a comparison. So, so there's a lot of inspiration there. So it, it, it it's not all like depression. It's it's about the beauty of the environment and uh, desire to respect it, desire to like give it a, a new kind of spin and voice. I I'm not well. I'm occasionally into yelling social policy things, but in terms of the these like paintings and uh, digital art pieces, it's more about an elegant kind of discussion. And then to get to the springs, I mean that technically is. Wait, let me think now. There's an eight-year journey to make those works, even though it was nine months approximately of me learning from developers and having them help me build the physical or the code for it. And that that is really, well, you'll see the through line because of that. So basically, I went on a shipping vessel across the Pacific 
And I didn't, I wanted the work to discuss that environment, the floating micro environment and the macro beautiful environment of the sea. And I brought a full studio of painting materials. And one day I got brave enough to throw a finished painting in the Pacific and let it drag alongside the boat. And when it came out, the human hand was gone and the movement of, of the water created these patterns that are sort of like light fracturing through water. And I thought, oh, this is the sort of ultimate idea of the earth creating art, like recomposing it, giving it its own sort of imprint. And that, that has been a big driver of the practice for the last eight years. And then in today, like I was insistent, it makes me a bad coder technically, I would think, but I was insistent that these, these environmental imprints were on this collection, which meant a complicated series of things to basically take that patterning in a JPEG and shrink it down to something tiny and then use the code to blow it back up. But it's still made so the earth still has an imprint in these digital works. And there are other ways I kind of make that movement in code, but I really wanted to keep that that stamp of the earth as the earth did it, not as as I did it or as the code did it. So that's I think I just went in circles. I don't know if I really answered it, but <laughs> no, that, that's beautiful. I I love the inspiration behind it. I love the kind of experimentation with the physical. And I also really love the fact that you are trying to bring what you experience in real life into the code and, and recreate that. Uh, Tyler Hobbs has this addition that he did with proof called the wall. And he was trying to generate a brick wall that he took a picture of in, in Austin, Texas. And I think there's something really interesting about the concept of taking our very precise mechanical systems, but then trying to make them a little bit more random like we see in real life. That's, and that's beautiful. And you were telling me before when we had spoken that the spring is, is part of a series of, of works you're doing. Maybe you could share that with the audience just to kind of tee up more of the, the concept behind it. Sure. Well, well, at first, I just wanted to try to make this sort of statement of beauty and the environment. And then I took the title from John Muir's first book about California. And it, it kind of triggered something in my mind of, oh, this could be the movement of a bigger dialogue. So my idea is to make it so the spring is the first and then chaos comes with the summer haze is the second. And they're independent. They would they should show on their own. They can exist on their own. But you could also combine them. And the idea is that the spring is the beauty of the environment. This the chaos is is when humans start panicking in essence and you, the human hand comes back so you still see these patterns of the earth the water the clouds and things but human painterly brush strokes are starting to make a statement again like suddenly we we realize what you think would come in real life already given all the natural disasters and everything but it hasn't so so that's sort of the idea like here's the beautiful spring Here's the chaos. And we'll see where it goes from there. It could just end there and that would be okay. Or it could go to a fall and winter seasonal progression that, that mirrors this idea of like maybe collapse and rebuilding. No, that's that's beautiful. I, I love that. And I we hadn't talked about the the human brush strokes coming in with the with the summer or I guess chaos. I love 
Ah, I, I really like it. I, I hope you make more of them. Of course, you know, go through with the, your artistic intent and we'll respect whatever decision you make. But we didn't explicitly say this as a collector. I love that idea. It's like, oh, I want I want all of them. And full disclosure, I did pick up one of the, the springs after we had talked. I would like to tell folks on in the audience if we own something or not so they know. And don't think that we are just trying to pump our own bags, as we say in Web3. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's amazing. So uh, let's let's go ahead and dive into it. I'm just gonna so for everybody listening on audio only, uh, Cole curated a wonderful gallery. We threw it up on Deca. I'm gonna share the screen over there and uh, go ahead and, and take our faces off so we don't distract from the art. So Cole, if you gotta take a drink of water now, no one will see. <laughs> we, we've been chatting a lot and just a, a tiny bit of. Context on the collection, it was launched on Artblocks. It was an Artblocks factory project. It was launched on July 11th, 2022. There are 487 pieces to the collection. So here we have up our DECA gallery. And yeah, Cole, I, I would love to just uh, have you talk through why you chose these pieces and to the extent you can talk about how you thought about your algorithm and the variation of outputs that you wanted to have? Sure. I can't say there was much to my thought process of which ones I selected, frankly, because by the time it was built and the 10,000 testaments I'd done, I was happy with every single one. It didn't really matter to me. It's a weird dichotomy, I guess, between like what you would collect or like what's rare. Um, I just find I just like them all. I'm, I'm a bad, kind of bad judge of them, but in terms of I mean, what you see on your screen, Gestalt is the is the patterning that I spoke of, the environmental movement, and you can see the the one on the left. I mean, you can see it in both of them, but that that sort of fracturing light feeling in the white uh, that was, you know, it was intentional that I picked a few of the patterns that showed that that kind of environmental imprint. Valley Dreams, the one on the right, you see it a little bit, but you also see this sort of tree bark or reptile skin. Or I started to notice in exposing the paintings to the elements that a lot of the patterns of the environment would show up. I just found it so interesting that the, the math of it, the elegance of it, like I was mainly dragging these paintings in the water, but leaving them in rain and painting them on the ground and dirt and rocks. And, and you just saw this repetition, like the earth trying to continue to make sort of similar a similar pattern regardless of whether it was on a piece of linen or or a tree so you you can see i mean i don't know you guys can tell me but i think it's kind of obvious the white is the pattern the sort of stamp and that's the difference of these and that was a pivotal moment in making the whole thing like figuring out how to get that on there it's in it's dithered and intentionally pixelated a little bit because i wanted it to be about the environment but also reference the computer some down below is one thing called the machine is learning which is just a sort of fun title because i wanted to recognize that these are digitally made things while they also reference the environment so what are you know we're, we're in both worlds in a way you can see a couple more of the patterns here like the sort of x mark uh through the fairyland one and and on the left a pretty spotlight kind of feeling of movement and kind of feels like dirt or a beach a little bit too so so that was the idea i think there's 11 different patterns and then with the patterns you know i changed them a lot so there would be a wide variety of 
things. Like they didn't look too similar to other ones. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And and looking at the metadata that we have on here, you're right. There are 11 different patterns. And so is it safe to say that these patterns were kind of modeled after natural patterns that you visualize? Yeah, I mean, they were paintings. I painted paintings. I dragged them in either the Pacific Ocean or Lake Michigan, which are or Kachuma Lake uh, in Central California. And then I photographed them. And then that can't really functionally live on chain. And it, it would get have a different vibe anyways. But then I shrunk those down to very, very small files uh, that were just grayscale and blurry. and But you still understood the pattern and then built them back up, sharpening them, call, you know, affecting their coloration dithering them and, and so forth to to get them to the the state of the movement that was effective i mean you could if you saw the actual the paintings that they started with you would see the same movement they wouldn't look exact visually exactly the same but you would you would get that component at least got it no that makes perfect sense so yeah i it, you know it would be awesome someday to see some of them because i think it'd be really cool to see how it translated over into the digital especially code-based you could probably find them on on my website I, I can't remember i mean there's lots of paintings on there i don't know if you'll find these specific ones but you'll get the get the vibe from it for sure get that okay awesome we'll we'll, we'll have that in the show notes and uh if i can find one while you're talking i'll, I'll put up here um, <laughs> so that was the uh, gestalt which is i guess kind of like this overarching theme that comes through in the pieces. And then you pointed out Gestalt frequency. Could you explain how you thought about this one? Sure. One, I just wanted more variety in the thing. So that has to do with the frequency, but also this idea of like learning or, or building on things, uh, multiplication. I wanted to deal with all, all those things a little bit too. So the frequency has two components. One, there, there's a, a portion of them that are Rorschach folded in essence, um, either horizontally or vertically, and then sometimes rotated as well. So it's not, those aren't super, I mean, some of them are super obvious that they're are like a Rorschach test, but some of them are not because once you fold it and then twist it, you kind of lose perspective on it. So that's one portion of these. I think the two actually below this are those. And then the other frequency thing is how many times it's sort of splitting. So there's these totems that are, are tower, like diptych feeling things. And then from the two, it goes to a, a well, side to side to a two by two and four by four and eight by eight and a 16 by 16. Um, they feel like maybe the machine is taking over the patterning to some degree. At least that was my, my thought with it it's trying to replicate itself in a way. And so the, the sunrise reflection, like that one, you can, that one's a good example. Of, like you can tell that that was split in the middle like that. So that's kind of the thought behind it. And I didn't think, this is one of those things where in the process of building it, I liked an idea that I didn't know I would like, I guess, uh, which is the, the checkerboards. If you scroll down to the next two, um, I started to really like these checkerboards, which at first I thought, I, I don't know, I wasn't really, Sure, it was even a good idea to try, but it it created this depth of field that was kind of eerie and and pleasant at the same time. 
And you see, I mean, the machine is learning is the, the largest volume of the checkers. And those are pretty, pretty rare. I think the machine is learning is one that occurs the least. So it's just sort of hinting at that. And then, I mean, in the, in chaos, there's actually more of them because the machine continues to learn. So it's getting more subjected to this format of like, kind of like a pixel. Yeah, absolutely. And we had talked about this, I believe, that these checkered ones seem to really resonate with collectors. And I do think there's something beautiful about the juxtaposition of the natural features that you see radiating out here with this one on the left, for example, with that kind of human and I don't want to say mechanical, but very precise checkerboard. It, it's, I don't know, it's something, it, it really catches my eye as well. And there's another one of these frequencies called Quartos, uh, which also has a checkerboard, I think just fewer squares, but that one also seems to be highly coveted by collectors. Yeah, it seems like people don't really, I mean, the prices of this collection are, are well, in my snobby opinion, I guess very low, but those ones just don't seem to be for sale, really. I mean, there's maybe, I'd like to have one of the machinist learning ones, but I don't think, if they're for sale, they're very expensive. I don't know. I, I don't think they're... Well, they they're, want to they're sell locked them. up, but I would think that a collector would be willing to to give it to you as the artist at, at a reasonable well, price. I don't want to like, I don't want to guilt a collector or anything. <laughs> I don't know. I don't need to go that far. I can keep making things. It's fine. For sure. For sure. No, but th these are beautiful. And I appreciate you explaining that. And I, I see what you mean about the totem. It looks like it's a little bit diagonal over here on the sunset reflection. And it's a, yeah, I just love how you're thinking about these. So compass, what was the, uh, the, the compass uh, compositions here? Well, compass is the easiest to explain. It's just the rotation of, of the gestalt component. So I picked this one as the the same gestalt and you can see one is directly north and one is almost directly south. Um, the way it works, I mean, if you rotate something of that shape, obviously when it gets to, let's say, an uh, east and west, it needs to also expand. So as they rotate, sometimes you get an expansion which has more pixelation, but it's also more focused on an individual component as it grows. So compass is kind of two things at once, like spinning, so it spins 180 degrees, it doesn't have to expand, but any other degree shift, it expands a little bit. So they gave the patterning another element. You could look at the same pattern, but have a really close-up detail in one and a, and a full view in another. So it just it just added to the, to the variety of the movement, I guess. Got it. Now that makes perfect sense. And it looks like, well, and there's one here that I'm, I'm curious about. So what, what is the difference between north and true north? True north is is exactly like exactly north um so north so uh, i have to look at how many i forget what the degrees are in, in, off the top of my head but i want to say 30 degrees i think so there's a range that counts as north or west or whatever or northwest and then there's an exact straight up or an exact straight down so it's it's a small it could be a really small difference but actually when it moves to let's say a 25 degree angle yeah, you know, that's a fairly big difference. So we wanted to like make that kind of iconical, I guess, as a as a direct straight up idea. Right. Okay. Awesome. I, I, I see what you're saying. And 
you might find this interesting, or you probably know, but none of the true Norths are for sale either. Although some of the true Souths are. Oh, really? I had no, oh, actually I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I haven't spoken to a ton of collectors about this project, but uh, I might be random, might be a reason. I do think the true Norths look really cool though, for sure. Okay, cool. And, and coverage. Well, this is the, there's two ways to affect the color palette. One is the underpainting palette, which we'll cover in a second, a little bit more, but the other way is, is these uh, filters. So one Maelstrom is, is like the nighttime. I think it's pretty obvious, but you know, that darker palette, Hibernal is like the winter time. And then I can never pronounce our Arboretum. I don't know why, but Arboretum is, is a flip on everything and gives you this wild rainbow of colors, which I was like, shocked that this worked effectively i mean i spent a long time curating 300 a little bit over 300 colors that could work randomly together and the idea that you could kind of flip them on them on their face and they all still worked and gave you a new exciting perspective was was cool and something i'd never done in the physical world like some of these colors i'd never even considered so that basically like flips the colors around on its side. And I think I think that's the rarest. It's not super rare, but it's, it's less than the other two. Yeah. Um, so you get winter, nighttime, and plethora of coloration from, from fl a flower garden, let's say. No, that makes perfect sense. And it's, yeah, those are really beautiful. I'll show what's on my other screen here real fast so people watching can see. Uh, these are the... Arboretum. To your point, there's 54 of them. And I really love how the colors mix together. I think you did a fantastic job curating that. Um, a lot of these are really, really catching my eye. So uh, thank, like, thank you for explaining that. That's super useful to understand. Oh, thanks. And you'll see in, in that, the grayness comes out too. You know, there's a lot of gray ones in that group, but then there's the rich color through the gray, which is just cool to me. I like, I like how that, that worked out. Yeah, awesome. And palette field theory. You have fantastic names, by the way. I like that you you made like sentences and more than just like a one word for some of these descriptions. It's one of my favorite things. I mean, every book I read, I underline phrases that are totally out of context for whatever the book is, but and collect those into lists. And then I write my own things and collect those into lists. So I take the titling of, I mean, you can look at my paintings or anything I've made and they have elaborate titles. I didn't realize it's not as popular of a thing in Web3. But then when I saw how, I think it was OpenSea, how it organizes like whatever, the top 100 things, let's say. If you have a one word title, it's more effective if you want your name out there, I guess, because then it's like XYZ by Cole. Whereas mine, it will be the spring begins dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like, so. But I can't resist. Yeah, it's fun for me to title things in, in a specific way. So in all the riches of the world is, is that whole palette. And the vast majority is a random selection of five or six colors from this crazy mix of colors that I picked. And then there's a limited amount that are sort of monochromatic. Helios, you know, like the sun, and Regicide is the purple one, which is, you know, murdering the monarch. 
So that was kind of kind of fun to play with. And you get, I mean, you get, I think you get a, a, a lot different feeling from the monochromatic ones. So there's a rationale of, of the two things. Like one is the spring, a rainbow of things. And the other is maybe hinting at the future in a way when the colors aren't as rich together. Yeah. And I'll just pop on screen here again to show folks some of the monochromatic ones. These are fantastic. I mean, all of them are fantastic, but this is part of what we love about generative art is when you get this kind of variety, it makes you appreciate the variance even more. So uh, thanks. I actually bought, bought one of those ones. One of those is mine on there. Awesome. I wanted one of the graphite ones because that was an unusual thing. And frankly, that's one of the hardest things to do in a physical painting is get that richness with just the, the black and white. Yeah. No, I mean, you really nailed it on this one. These are awesome. Okay, so that's palette. And, and I guess let me ask, why did you, how did you decide what frequency you'd want for the Helios and the Regicide and all the other ones, basically everything? So for folks listening, there are 465 out of the total of, uh, oh, where's the total? Out of 487 are in this palette field theory, all the riches of the world. So I don't know. It seems like you wanted to make these quite rare. What, how'd you think about that? Well, I mean, it brings up a bigger question that's hard for me. Like, why is something, why should you make something rare? And I don't, I don't know. Because on one hand, you, it's, it sounds like a nice idea. Like, oh, I love this feature. Let's make it rare because it's so cool. But then on the other hand, it's so cool that shouldn't it be in you know, the vast majority of something? So everyone sort of benefits from it. And, but in terms of this grouping, it was more that it's rare for me to see work in singular colors. So I wanted to address that, like, okay, occasionally I make a singular color thing and I like it. And that's just the sim you know, simple way it is. So in terms of my overall work, I think it's the right percentage of things kind of. Got it. That makes sense. And the, and the singular color portion resonates and, and that makes a ton of sense. And as we've interviewed other generative artists, what we found is that the question of how rare or less rare, I, I think they have a feeling for how they want the whole set to look and they may tweak, okay, there's maybe too many of this type, regardless of how nice it looks. I think sometimes that is uh, the, their thought process, but I think it makes a ton of sense. And, you know, again, as we collectors, we love things that are more rare and visually distinct. That's like uh, candy for us. So <laughs> uh, really like that you did that. Let's talk about color apportionment. So this is just, so the other way, the main way really that color comes through in these works is the application of thousands and thousands of partially translucent paint splotches that layer on top of each other. but it's a fiber well between i guess technically four and six colors are dominant in these things and you can pick where that how they're laid out on a canvas so oh god i'm gonna forget how many apportionments i think there's 14 maybe 17 17 oh, well it's earlier but uh i got it right in front of me so i'm cheating <laughs> so these are just a couple easier kind of examples some of them aren't as obvious but the piazza, you know, the dominant is that red, and it felt like part of a of a square or a town center to me, like with sort of 
border buildings being the purple and yellow. Uh, and then the sequoias are these stripes. Um, this, this output is one of the, the like most lined up, I guess, like most of them tend to blur together at the lines a little bit more. And those just felt, you know, like the totems feel too, just like these stronger vertical structures. So that that's kind of the thought behind it. You could go a million directions with those apportionments. I mean, it's fun to, to build those out. Yeah. And this is making me want to dive into the code myself and start learning how you, how you like can play around with these levers, but I love this Piazza and there, as we mentioned, there are 17 of these. So there's uh, quite a variety and, uh, you know, translating into some of these different color palettes. So love these as well. Yeah. This Piazza is really catching my eye doorway. I think, I guess this is, uh, this one I could probably figure out. Is it the, the presence or not of this kind of rectangular structure in the piece? Yeah, yeah. the least tricky of my strange features, but I like the idea of a portal, you know, and what are we looking towards or through? And it takes that tiny gestalt and builds it up also, but in a little bit different way with these softer, shadowy kind of uh, feelings to it. And, and then they're just, you know, layered layered on top like that yeah i love these and we see this not this exact concept but actually no this is this is actually quite distinct having having this portal here sometimes we see a border but this is quite different from a border in in different collections but i i really actually like this portal concept and i like how the colors are interfacing with it how it's not really front and center but kind of mixed in yeah it's meant to feel like part of it and creating more depth versus framing i guess there's four sizes to it and it floats around on the canvas too. So it tends to not be in the exact center. Got it. That makes sense. And uh, I'll uh, I'll pull one up here for folks to see. I think this is a, a nice example of a portal that's not in the center. And that's yeah. a, another thing that collectors like is the, the Easter egg hunt. So that's a, a hidden feature, as we would call it, where I don't think in any of the traits it well, maybe it does. Does it does it ever tell you where the portal is on there? I know you have a few portal traits. Oh, I can't remember now. I know it tells the size. I don't think it it, yeah. it tells the size. It tells the relation to the under pattern. So sometimes they're in the same movement. Sometimes they're in the opposite movement. Um, flipped like up or down, left or right. I don't think it says the position. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, we have portal guidance portal motivation, portal scale, and uh, none of those have to do with position. So there we go. The first hidden feature, folks, trying to <laughs> get, get a portal that's like uh, exactly center or off center. That was an, an accidental hidden feature, I think. So I didn't, when I was, I mean, this is the first thing I made. So even the features, I was just like, oh God, okay, we got to list everything. And it's, it's a little confusing, I think, for people like there's, one, I use these crazy titles, but also there's so many features, it's kind of hard to navigate, I think. Well, you, you know, it's there's a mix. I actually don't think you have a maybe like a slightly above the average in terms of different features for a generative art collection, but it's not crazy. I mean, Gazers has like 80 features. And what ends up happening is that some naturally become more or less influential on the visual output. 
And those are the ones that collectors tend to gravitate towards. Sometimes there's rarity that people care about because whatever, it's limited. So that people really want those. But I think generally speaking, the way you set it up here and explained it here is not out of the ordinary. Cool. Okay, good. <laughs> and amazing. So this is the spring. We will link to the show notes. Like I, I really enjoy this collection. So I'm grateful for you taking the time to put together these pieces to show the audience to, to making it, of course, and also for taking the time here to, to explain it and talk through it. But we have a collector's corner first time in that you also have a few outputs from your next collection. The well, It's not the summer, but, and I'm sorry, I forgot the exact words, but the chaos. Yeah, yeah, it's called chaos comes with the summer haze. Chaos comes with the summer haze. So we are going to, I'm going to stop sharing my screen and I would love to see what you have queued up for us. Okay, cool. Okay. We have Cole's screen up here. He's showing us some of the outputs from chaos. Take it away. I, I know nothing about this. So this, this is your <laughs> show. Okay. So, so the next step of this overarching concept is called chaos comes with the summer haze, like I said, and the idea is there's components that you'll recognize from the spring, but it's its own organism and the gestalt and the color palette and the manner, the apportionments and all those things are, are different. Um, I think the direct reference you'll see is this pixelated gestalt idea, but instead of those being based on paintings, they're based on photography that I've taken over the last few years of clouds and of water. So I'm giving the environment its patterning, but in a, in a little bit different way. And then the more sort of dramatic element is this brushstroke theory that's coming up that picks up the colors of the background and like a sort of wet oil paintbrush smears them across. Uh, and this one I have up right now, it's structured within that square where you'll see there's ones that are super haphazard. So the idea is the dramatic nature of the water and the and the sky are are taking the earth back from humans and humans are panicking. And I mean, news about this drop will be, I mean, probably coming out this week. But um, but the and these are testaments from the final coding. So this is you know what they what they'll look like. Um, and there's a super wide variety. And I think there's 22 gestalts in this one, and the paintbrush patterning is there's. I think 11 patterns of paintbrushes and then where they sit on it, there's a, a variety of, of ways you'll see. Like here's one that's very haphazard. And then there's elements you'll recognize from the spring, like the checkerboard comes up. And what I, now that there are these brush strokes, I really like how those pick up the checkerboard or the portal because that gray mixes so nicely, you know, with, with the other colors. Uh, and this, yeah, in this series, I took uh, I think I took the number of colors down to about two hundred, and they're all hazy. So there's a rainbow of coloration still, but they all have this haze and um, sort of fogginess to them. And then this time, I actually picked a lot of color palettes. There's thirty-seven color palettes, so it ends up being fifty percent random and fifty percent color palettes. And I just kind of started to get into that for this one because I could create things like this one, for example, that's predominantly 
blue with that little bit of green. And then you can see the dramatic nature of, of the clouds and everything. I think, I think it comes through and then this panicked, scary brushstroke thing coming down. No, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but th these are so good. I really like these. Could you go back to that checkerboard one? I had a question for you on that one. Yeah. So on the top, uh, mostly across the top, more so on the top right, the background, the checkerboard, I guess in this case, gets obscured. It's very, very hazy. Is that part of what you did here with the variety, make certain portions of the piece be more or less hazy? Yeah, that's correct. So it's breaking itself down in essence, uh, whether it's the heat doing it, which is the sort of theme of the title and the feeling I got. I mean, when I almost finalized this code, it was 120 degrees outside my studio. <laughs> it's never been, I've never, I don't think I've ever been in 120 degrees. And I just thought, oh God, this is like happening, if, you know, in front of me as I'm making this. So that is, is part of the concept. And you'll also, can't tell too much on this one, but a lot of the checkerboards, well, I shouldn't say a lot, maybe a third of them, um, slant a little bit now. So there's a, there's a tilt to them. There's probably a more obvious one here, but that's another part. And also this collection is only 163. Both huh. collection numbers are lucky primes. 163 is about one third of the 487 of the spring. So despite it having like technically more attributes and I guess the theoretical wider variety, it, um, it's a more limited collection because that fits sort of with this of collapse in a way. And maybe if there are more, they'll grow back up or maybe they'll go down more. I haven't really decided yet, uh, but that's just another little side component of it. It could be an interesting where like the, you know, the fall or the autumn is even worse, but then the winter starts getting better depending on how, how you want to end the story here. Hopefully it gets better towards the end. <laughs> well, I was thinking it would be very depressing, but the winter is just one, you know, like just like the end kind of, but I don't think it's going to be that. I, I don't like to, I like to just focus on these as their own collections, but with that idea of, okay, maybe they will be a four, foursome in the end. Absolutely. And this, this one is so cool. Like I, another question I have for you is you thought about these strokes some of them seem more linear, some are more curved. How did you think about mixing that in? Well, I wanted it to feel like humans, really. So some humans are more structured, some are more messy, some in a panic might scribble circles, some might just haphazardly draw lines. And I wanted, I wanted to get all those feelings in there. You can look at old paintings of mine and see similar movements to some of them, and then other you know, artists historically have used different movements. And then, I mean, like the checkerboard, they kind of feel like coffee stain circles in a way too, which I like. It's just another reference to humans in a way. So, so I was really trying to make that feel like humans doing something, I guess. Uh, and then some, oh, some are more like a waterfall too. Yeah. You know, this is, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the outputs here because given the amount of variety, and the limited number of pieces, we're going to see many that are probably very unique and maybe don't have too many overlapping features, or at least not obvious overlapping features. Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be, I always kind of feel like they're all in a way one of ones, but you can, in the spring, you can, you, you can see, you know, mirrors and the gestalt and stuff like that. But I don't, 
and I'm sure that that'll be the case in this as well to some degree. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's more fe- a lot more features and a lot less of them. So it's natural that it would end up that way. And like this one that I just pulled up is a Rorschach with the painterly component. So I mean, it really feels like I don't know an alien coming coming down to me. And you get a, such a different vibe than you know the waterfall or the the more scribbly circular things. So yeah, I mean, I hope as they are minted, it, like everyone gets something that they feel like is special and and like a one of one. Yeah, I I mean to your point, generative art that's baked into it, but these I think feel even more so like that. And this is really cool. What uh, Gestalt? Gestalt? I gotta stop trying to say that word. Uh, yeah, it's German, but. I mean, I could have just said pattern, I guess. I just want to make it hard. I'll, I'll handle Arboretum. <laughs> you handle Gestalt. We'll, we'll, we'll be good. So this is, I mean, this is the result of a few features together, but there it, it originally was a picture of some dramatic clouds, but then it gets folded. So like the Rorschachs of the spring, there's folds at that level, and then there's another fold at the at the paintbrush level. So you end up, getting that split and the color split too from that that feels totally different than the other ones and it still has a similar kind of hibernal uh filter but muted based because of the colors and then you get some that are pretty straightforward like that's pretty clean i think you get some that feel maybe like they're a little evil or something too like that one i just i mean they, oh and then some of them so the quadros that oh. the quadra the well this is that's four quadrants but then because of how it's folded, you know, the brush strokes only stay in the two quadrants. Yeah, that one looks really cool. It looks like almost like something trying to claw its way out of there. Yeah, it's, I mean, I love, I, I love like minting all these and just staring at them. I mean, this one feels really symbolic of the whole thing. And you see the, the dramatic nature of the clouds, but there's also kind of these, I don't know, computer eyeball face thing at the top. Yeah, and I, I think you've done a really good job here of having a mix of sort of, hopefully it's not the right wrong word, but like muted color, like pieces of the more, like you said, that one looked evil, kind of darker, but then you also have really bright ones and more colorful ones. I think it gives it an edge and and it really feels like with the, the brush strokes, you, you did a fantastic job of giving them depth and shadow. It looks, they look really tangible. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was a very challenging part of it. Oh, I mean, then you get like stuff like this one that feels totally different. It feels like a frozen over ocean in essence. Yeah, awesome. But it's, I mean, the news on it and the the front page of the release will be, I think, coming out in the next couple of days. You can check my Twitter if you want. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us other than, well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll probably be live. But I, I so I guess just for me, other than 163, 163 pieces, are there any other details that you are able to share? Well, I mean, by the time it comes out, I feel like it'll be public anyways, but it, I mean, it's going to be released with our blocks, I suspect probably at the end of February, beginning of March. And there's, oh, so with the Spring Begins, the first 48 minted received this box set where I hand built a crate, uh, made a hardcover book. To, describing visually the process of of the whole project included a sculptural rock and your mint was printed and mounted on a piece of maple so for this project there's a similar reward people that that buy early in it in essence 
And this time it'll be a book about this, your edition mounted on wood in this crate that I custom built. And then instead of just a rock, it's a rock wrapped in porcelain partially. Uh, so I wrap these rocks in porcelain, porcelain and then throw them in the kiln. So you, you get this kind of cool package with it to blend that physical feeling and, and digital feeling together. It's really, a, frankly, a laborious project for me to build all those, but it, I really like them. And I think it's cool when people get this thing in the mail, you know, that weighs 30 pounds and it's in this big art crate that they have to figure out how to unscrew. I was going to say, it sounds like a lot of work, but that's that's amazing that you're doing that. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's this, I don't want to say a trend. Oh, that one is really nice. I like that a lot. I'm a I'm a big fan of blues and the blue and the orange there hits. Sorry, I got I got distracted by beautiful art, which is my life these days. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, there's this concept of the NFT not only being the final output, but the process that it went through. And I know a lot of the stuff that you know, the book I'm sure will document some of that and your thoughts behind it. It's just interesting to think that you could mint not only the actual NFT, but part of it. And, and that should be considered the whole body of work as opposed to just that last output. Yeah, I think it's fun to do those things. And I I mean, I love hunting down the rocks and making the sculptures and stuff. It's mainly just building the crates. It's hard. But yeah, it's cool. I think people are were pleasantly surprised when they received those boxes in the first one. Oh, and if you're out there and you're one of the 20 people that hasn't claimed yours yet, feel free to claim them. They're sitting there waiting, waiting for me to ship them to you. You know, after this comes out, people will probably go and hunt down those ID numbers and, and try to claim them. Or if they own it, they'll they'll do it themselves. So I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Oh nice. Yeah, all the you can hunt down the numbers that have been claimed already on the website for the project for the spring spring one and then eventually chaos as well. So you'll know if you're trying to buy one, you know, it's been claimed already. Perfect. Perfect. Well in the in the interest of time, I would, you know, I just kind of had one last question for you in you are congratulations on completing your second generative work and okay. second release on art blocks. That's amazing. I wanted to ask you, what are you thinking about next? I know you you don't like to take a lot of breaks, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, so, are you thinking Web three next? Are you thinking? You, I, I know it's not that kind of delineation in your mind. So, are you thinking generative next? Are you thinking painting and whether you? actually kind of decide to distribute it through a Web3 mechanism or a traditional art mechanism, what's got you intrigued these days? Well, so, so many things. I have exhibitions that coming in the physical world where pretty much the work is done and ready to go. And there's a book I'm working on that hopefully will be published this year. I wrote a letter to Gerard Richter every day for a year and mailed it to him. And it's, it's those letters as a combined massive book. But, uh, and then in terms of web three stuff, I've been, I mean, I've been working on a lot of different things and I'm not quite sure, well, I have to just figure out exactly how they're all going to work. Um, I'm working on some things that are generative, but use outside assets so I can take high res images and combine them with generative processes, which you can't, you can do it on our blocks engine, but you can't do it on the regular art blocks because they can't live on chain. So I've been working on some things in that realm uh, with some pretty big news to come on that soon. And then 
some video works I've been compiling because I have 20 years of digital digitized video work and all this vintage digitized like film slides and things from my grandparents or that I bought on the internet. So I've been compiling all this information to create different layered, probably one of one works, but I don't have a, a route yet. I mean, my main goal is to get chaos out and into the world first and, and then look at all this other stuff that fills my mind and kind of organize it properly. Now that makes sense. And in my mind, I was thinking about how do you get all this done? But then I was like, yeah, the law school, law school will do that too. <laughs> got yeah, got that school. work ethic. Uh, <laughs> I just can't resist. It's fun for me. It's not work. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, and I, I know I was saying this earlier, feeling that way first time in my life. It's, it's just like I'm compelled, right? It's like I wake up, I'm tired. I know I should go back to bed because I didn't sleep enough, but my mind, I'm just like on. It's like ready to go. So yeah, that's congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations to you. Everybody, you know, with their health problems. Well, <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, I don't think about that part as much. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, look, you're on vacation. So I, I want to get you out of here on time. And I'm, I'm really, thank you for showing that to us. Like, that's amazing. I'm really excited for the release of uh, Chaos. Where can people find you? Where would you like people, where would you like us to direct people to, to find you? If you want us to. Uh, no, I mean, well, I think my website, frankly, is the most information. But uh, which is colesternberg.com, but then Twitter and Instagram and Discord are all good. I don't, there's not as much visual on Discord, but you can find me to chat with me. And they're all just my name, Cole Sternberg, for all of those mechanisms. So perfect. And we, we saw you have an Instagram. We'll, we'll link to that too. You have a Wikipedia page. We'll link to that too. <laughs> so we'll, you could watch my TED talk. You could link to that. Yeah. The other day I did a conversation and I, miss, I misheard. Andy Shaw, Munface, and he said, oh, tell him about your TikTok. And I thought he said, tell him about your TED Talk, which are totally unrelated things. So I started talking about that, but I have a TikTok too that I just started. You can see what my studio looks like. That's the only way to really see the studio, I guess, is on the TikTok. Interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I will, I will venture to TikTok just for that. I have not done it yet, not because of any reason other than I just I'm not great at social media, so I'm like, who who cares about my my life's pretty boring. So you you can see me editing podcasts, like that's my studio. So, <laughs> but you know, you know, I know this is a totally random thing, but people, I'm consistently surprised at what people will want will watch. Right. So there's this. You might probably heard of Twitch, which was this game yeah, yeah. live streaming. I was like, why would people want to watch other people play video games? And we just did an interview with a couple of folks who are really knowledgeable about uh, Terraforms, which is this very, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like really interesting, like really cyberpunk, techie, generative art project. Uh, it's more than that. The people who are fans of it will be horrified that I called it that. But at a base level, at the surface level, it looks like a gen art project. And there's a lot more deeper beneath it. But anyways... Apparently the founder will have uh, coding. He'll just be coding and live streaming it. And people will just be watching and code in Discord. And, I'm just, you know, I'm starting to open up my mind about what people actually like are interested <laughs> in seeing. Maybe they do want to see us making a podcast. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I don't get it. I, my TikToks, you can tell are, there's a lot of time spent on them and they're elegant and they're a little long. And not that hardly. I mean, I just started it, but, you know, no one really watches them. 
compared to if you just say something rude for five seconds, everybody watches that. So I, I'm with you. I have no idea. But That's it's true. a medium to play with in the creative process, not necessarily looking at other people doing things. Yeah, yeah. And something that we think about too, because it's so visual and to showcase art, especially as we get further into like this art that has motion that we're trading and, and you want to be able to see the movement, certainly. But I, I will digress. I know we, we can keep talking forever. Uh, thank you again so much. We'll direct folks to your release when it comes out. We'll have all this stuff in the show notes and uh, all where they can find you. And uh, Jared, unfortunately, had to drop. But on his behalf, he is at Jared underscore pause and uh, check him out. I am at Aston Cloud. We're at collectors underscore XYZ. We really appreciate it. Send everybody, send Cole your love, everybody. This is like an amazing traditional artist who is sharing his knowledge and his work with us and really, uh, you know, really towing the line, like you're getting into the code. And that to me is shows a level of commitment that I think our listeners will really, really appreciate uh, beyond just your beautiful work. So thank you thank again you. for taking the time. I don't know. It was great chatting. We could, we could have to do an eight hour one next time. <laughs> yeah. I, so, so many random things to talk about. We'll say that for, we'll say that for next time. All right, everybody take care. Thank you for tuning into Collector's Corner. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you like this episode and want to help us out, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on YouTube. Please also follow us on Twitter for announcements as we expand to other social and content platforms. Our Twitter handle is at collectors underscore XYZ. We'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So please comment or reach out. We're always striving to be more useful and get better so we can help you in your collecting journey. The Collector's Corner team and their guests are not registered investment advisors. All views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions and are not specific inducements to make particular investments or investment strategies and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. This show is solely for informational and entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, please consult a professional.